0: Management of patients with HER2-positive breast cancer has changed dramatically in recent years. First, with the demonstration of the profound efficacy of trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting, and more recently with the evolution of new anti-HER agents like lapatinib and TDM1. I met with Dr. Hope Rugo for an update of this exciting area, and we framed our conversation around several patients in her practice. Beginning with a woman who presented with one of the most controversial clinical situations in breast cancer.
1: This patient is a 66-year-old architect, no children, works a lot of hours, actually kind of lived at her workplace with her husband where they shared a business. And she had a screening mammogram that showed a speculated mass, and an ultrasound showed a 0.8-centimeter hypoechoic lesion. So at this point, she was reassured that this was a very small tumor, and she likely wouldn't need any additional therapy after her surgery and radiation, and so she was feeling relatively positive about her disease. So she had a lumpectomy and sentinel lymph node biopsy, and this showed a 0.7-centimeter intermediate-grade invasive ductal carcinoma. The markers showed the tumor to be estrogen and progesterone receptor positive, was strongly estrogen receptor positive, and modestly progesterone receptor positive at about 30%. And HER2-new testing was positive with 3-plus staining, and FISH testing was performed and showed a ratio of 82 she had one sentinel lymph node removed, and this was negative for metastatic disease.
0: So now we're looking at a situation where she has a HER2-positive and ERPR-positive tumor, but yet it's negative node negative and small.
1: And very small, you know, only uh, stage 1b. And when this patient presented, it was before the most recent data presented at San Antonio from MD Anderson and the Belgian group, where they looked at a data set of patients who had very small tumors, so one centimeter and smaller. And this data suggested that even small tumors, and regardless of ER to some degree that are HER2 positive, still at a relatively high relapse risk. But
0: I mean, the number that popped out there to me was 23% recurrence in five years overall, which is not small. In
1: the HER2-positive group.
0: Right. That was grouping, though, everybody under a sonometer. With her
1: two positive disease, and the problem is that if you look at the numbers, it's still really a small number, and it may be that if you you know have ER positive disease, that that's Mm -hmm. really it may impact recurrence of her two positive disease. But plus, you have hormone
0: therapy to help out, maybe. Well,
1: maybe, and I think that that's one of the big issues is that we don't have a really good way right now to differentiate out the patients who are going to benefit more from hormone therapy or less because we know that her two positivity does two things. One, it confers relative resistance to hormone therapy. But secondly, we know that in the adjuvant trials, HER2 positivity trumped ER. So there was not a clear difference in benefit when you added adjuvant trastuzumab based on ER. And I think that that's all led us to believe that HER2 generally trumps ER. So this patient, actually, her surgeon had sent an oncotype score, actually recurrence score. Because she had ER positive disease. And of course, in many of these situations, the ER is back long before the HER2 is back. So they sent the Oncotype score, and it was 56, which is very high. You know, it's way at the far right hand end of the graph, and it corresponds to a very high risk of distant recurrence. And of course, in all scenarios that have been evaluated, that suggests a very high benefit from chemotherapy. But one of the things that's important to keep in mind when you look at the recurrence score is that it is modified by tumor size. And so very small tumors, you have to sort of ratchet it down a little bit. And very big tumors, you have to ratchet it up a little bit. And it's kind of like trying to put HER2 into Adjuvant Online. We don't know exactly how much, but, you know, for Adjuvant Online, we use a relative risk of 1.5. But, you know, maybe that's appropriate in terms of very small size and very big-sized tumors, but we really don't know. I mean, I think it's just important in your thinking and discussion with patients to keep that in mind. So here we have this patient who's <laughs> absolutely determined when I met her not to get anything other than hormone therapy and fully expects that that's the appropriate treatment for her cancer and has never really had any medical issues in her entire life, never even taken a non-steroidal. And now she has this small node-negative tumor that's HER2-positive and ER ER-positive with a very high recurrence score.
0: Let me ask you something. As you think about what to do with this lady, are you actually considering the recurrence score? Is recurrence score a legitimate thing to consider in decision-making in a patient who has a HER2-positive tumor?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting for most her2 positive tumors, it's not going to have any impact because they're usually a little bit larger or node positive or higher grade and you or know or
0: suppose you had a larger ER-positive, HER2-positive tumor with a low recurrence score, would it discourage you from giving chemo or tristuzumab? Well, that's the thing
1: is that most people aren't going to send the recurrence score on a larger node-negative HER2-positive tumor because everybody's convinced we should give chemo. And that was the inclusion criteria. If you had a tumor greater than one centimeter, regardless of ER, you were eligible for both the BCIRG and the European HERA trial. So I think that. You know, that group, I think, sets outside of where we think of the recurrence score. But where we do think of it is in these patients who have tumors that are one centimeter smaller, and particularly the ER ER-positive tumors, of course, where recurrence score is relatively validated. And in that situation, you know, of course, if you don't want to know the answer, generally you shouldn't send the test. And we don't have the validation. But I have actually had a single patient being that the N of patients that I send a recurrence score who have HER2-positive disease is very small, you know, if I was going to make the decision. But I have had a patient who was a little older, in her late 60s, and had a small ER ER-positive, HER2-positive tumor, and had a recurrence score sent. And the reason why I sent the recurrence score was again, you know, the tumors I think it was about 1.2 centimeters. It was a little bit bigger. She has a number of medical problems, including a large resection of her lung in Hong Kong for TB, and had plasma cytomas of the skin, and you know, and weighed 90 pounds. So I thought I really didn't want to give this woman chemotherapy. So I sent the recurrence score, and it actually came out to be a low score. And I talked to the people at Genomic Health, and they looked, and definitely she had the HER2 positivity by the Oncotype scoring system. But her ER and PR were high, which is relatively unusual, and proliferation was low.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what you'd expect. So, for example, with this lady, if it had been low, would you lean more towards not giving her chemo
1: I still would have said to her, I don't know what this means, but she would not have gotten chemotherapy, because she wouldn't have been convinced. And I think that it would have had to have been very low. I think intermediate or high, we would have still gone ahead with the chemotherapy. For the woman who's 90 pounds, I gave her hormone therapy and a year of Herceptin. But I'm saying that really softly. (laughs) Without chemo? Without chemo? There's no validation, no chemo.
0: Yeah. And you know, it's funny because when the adjuvant trials came out, I thought a lot of people would end up getting trastuzumab without chemo. And you don't hear people talking about that too much.
1: Well, I think that even though the metastatic trials looking at trastuzumab and lapatinib with aromatase inhibitors versus not the aromatase inhibitor without, you know, even though they both reached their endpoint and were positive trials, the results weren't earth-shattering, so people didn't have a long progression-free survival. So we do believe, and based on preclinical data, every trial that we've done, that these cancers are exquisitely chemotherapy-sensitive, and there's tremendous synergy with chemotherapy and HER2-directed therapy.
0: This is really interesting. That you bring this case up because what I've been hearing in terms of node negative, smaller HER2 positive tumors consistently from investigators and all admitting that that's just a global impression is they kind of use about a 0.5 cm as their breakpoint. So, this woman, a lot of people, because it's 0.7, one just going ahead and giving her trastuzumab. What about that, the 0.5? Are you more into trying to get oncotype?
1: Again, I don't send Oncotype on a lot of HER2-positive disease. I think that we're really in a quandary. We don't know that 0.5 is critical, but in most trials forever, size has made a difference. So I think that it's reasonable to say if a tumor is ER ER-positive and HER2-positive and less than 0.5 centimeters, that you could forego chemotherapy and use hormone therapy alone, I think where the complication comes in is then should you give trastuzumab since we have no data to support it in the adjuvant setting? And that, I think you have to individualize for a very young woman. I think most of us would probably lean towards giving the trastuzumab. In contrast, if you have an ER ER-negative HER2-positive tumor, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a tumor size other than in situ cancer where we would not use at least some chemo And trastuzumab because of the higher risk in that patient group. The one patient I was mentioning where I didn't use chemo, you know, it's because I was worried about the morbidity in that particular patient, not this one because she had so many medical problems.
0: So what happened with this woman?
1: So with this woman, what I did was have a lot of discussions with her. We had our initial meeting, and I said, look, you know, here's the data from the BCIRG trial in node-negative patients. Your tumor is a little smaller, but you can see that it benefited patients with ER ER-positive and ER ER-negative disease. You have a high recurrence score, and I would really recommend you do a short course of chemotherapy and a year of trastuzumab and adjuvant aromatase inhibitor therapy. And she said, oh, goodness, no, I don't want to do that. And I can't do it because the most important thing in my life is my work. And if I lose my hair, everybody will think I'm dying and I'll lose all of my business and my architecture firm, small firm doing mainly sort of external business, not small houses. And so I said, well, look, you know, I think this is really important. Why don't you get a second opinion? And she said, well, I don't want to travel around. So what I did was I did my national tumor board. I email a bunch of people the story and see what they say. So I emailed a bunch of people and everybody would give her a short course of chemotherapy and trastuzumab except for one person, one of the sort of you know, international key opinion leaders, and he thought for such a small tumor, an aromatase inhibitor and trastuzumab would be adequate therapy, aromatase but stood out alone.
0: trastuzumab, interesting. And
1: he said you could forego the trastuzumab as well. So what I did was, because I had one disagreeers, I sent it out to a few more people, and they all wanted to give chemo. And then I asked a number of people at meetings. So I reported to her all of this data, tallied it up, <laughs> and talked to her a lot, and she talked to some people who got chemo and visited the infusion center, and eventually she agreed to get chemotherapy, and we actually have now opened a trial. It's a multi-center trial run out of Dana-Farber, which is a great treatment for lower-risk HER2-positive disease. It's weekly paclitaxel for 12 weeks, very minimal toxicity, and most people don't even lose all their hair, and it starts growing back while they're still getting the paclitaxel, and a year of trastuzumab. But she actually was diagnosed and treated before that study opened. So I gave her docetaxel and cyclophosphamide for four cycles and a year of trastuzumab. And she has become the poster child for adjuvant chemotherapy. Mm. She went through her treatment. She didn't tell anybody. She wore her wig. Only one person guessed she worked fine. She didn't lose any business. And she looks fabulous now because her hair's grown back all curly. So she looks tremendous, very fashionable and stylish, and is out talking to patients about how she was able to get through it. So sometimes I'm nervous because she had such an easy time.
0: I guess we should point out, too, for the surgeons that this regimen that you gave her, the docetaxel cyclophosphamide, or so-called TC, has really been utilized a lot more now in the HER2-negative situation and kind of starting to replace anthracyclines or adriamycin along with cyclophosphamide in clinical practice. What's been going on in your own practice from that perspective?
1: We use a fair amount of TC. We give it the way it was published by Steve Jones – but we also use about somewhere between three to five days of Neupogen, GCSF, because mm-hmm. I found when I first started treating patients, the first two patients got admitted for febrile and neutropenia and had some mouth sores. And I thought, well, even if the rate's about 12, 15%, I'm not going to take that risk with the patient. So we give them the Neupogen. They don't complain. They love the Neupogen. Sometimes I can go down to three doses. And most people do extremely well with it. It's very well tolerated. And the thing I really like about that red Regimen is that there isn't the nausea and vomiting with AC. And with AC, the nausea and vomiting can be very unpredictable. So for example, you'll have three people do fine and the fourth person will have to come in for hydration every day after their chemo and need lots of drugs and still be thrown up. And so I think that that's a benefit of the TC regimen. Some people who our maybe later adopters of that kind of shift in adjuvant therapy have said, well, it could be a more difficult regimen, but I haven't found that to be true in practice with the growth factor
0: support. We've seen a real shift away from anthracyclines, not just in the HER2 negative situation, but even in the HER2 positive situation, and where you have another sort of TC slash H docetaxel, but this time with carboplatin. I'm curious, in your survey, when people said they wanted to give chemo, which chemo did they say? I'm guessing a lot of them were not anthracycline-containing.
1: Because she had such small size disease, so by size was low risk, and of course everybody saw the recurrence score as well, the recommendations were either the Dana-Farber trial, which we didn't have quite open, or a TC-type regimen, short course chemo. Some people would give AC followed by trastizumab. I think that those recommendations still are all over the map. I think probably there's a little enclave of senior breast cancer oncologists who are still very much seated in anthracyclines as being part of the standard regimen for most patients, particularly HER2-positive disease. And I think we need more data before we would abandon anthracyclines in general. But TC, there's no risk of getting secondary leukemia and no, even though these risks are low, no cardiac toxicity.
0: Right. Now, you're getting into this issue of oncotype and looking at new situations such as, I mean, maybe it's not new, but different than what a lot of people think about here in a HER2-positive situation. Another thing that's come out on the table over the past year is using Oncotype in patients who have node-positive tumors. What are your thoughts about that?
1: You know, this is a really complicated area, and I think that Oncotype can be used more safely in patients who have minimal disease in nodes, sort of those gray area cases. I am sure that we are treating patients who have node-positive disease with chemotherapy who are not benefiting. But I don't think we know who those are yet, either by a recurrence score or by print. I think that where I would be comfortable using Oncotype if it was reimbursed would be in patients who have, you know, a micromet in a node, strongly ERPR positive, postmenopausal women, very low-grade tumors, where a low recurrence score would convince me to use hormone therapy alone. For patients who truly have node-positive disease, although the benefit from the chemotherapy given in the intergroup trial that Kathy Albain presented, which was a FAC type of regimen, no taxane, you know, different kind of schedule and dosages, et cetera, than we use now, the relapse rate was still very high in the patients who had low recurrence scores. So I think that rather than taking the lesson from that that we should not give chemo, I think the lesson we've taken is that we need to give chemo in a smarter way.
0: Yeah, if you have a patient who's a significant risk, of course, that's a difficult personal situation for a patient to look at. But if the chemo is not going to lower it, why give it?
1: I agree. I think that that's sort of the opposite perspective. But we only know that CAF or FAC chemo isn't going to lower it. So then how do I tell a patient that dose dense ACT isn't or TAC or, you know, say, epirubicin followed by docetaxel? I mean, there are so many regimens that have been published since then that have shown advantages over the sort of old standards that I think that we don't know. And we're extending duration, obviously, of hormone therapy, which may play a big role too. But for all we know, these all work in concert. And I guess... One retrospective study of a subset of patients isn't adequate, and the relapse rate was too high. There are two reasons why I wouldn't use it in truly node-positive patients. But I would feel comfortable in patients who have ITCs or nanomets or micromets. And I think that, you know, recent data has suggested from San Antonio that there is a continuum, as we would expect, where your recurrence risk goes up a little bit if you have some cells in the node. It just doesn't go up as much as if you have a truly positive node.
0: Now, this woman, has she finished the trastuzumab?
1: She is, I think, just finished with her trastuzumab.
0: And so she's on hormone therapy Mm -hmm. at this point? She's
1: on an aromatase inhibitor.
0: And how's she doing on that?
1: She's doing great on it. It's so funny that she ended up being this poster child for everything, but she is. No arthralgias. She has very minimal arthralgias, well controlled with NSAIDs. Now, I have found that sometimes the arthralgias get worse over time, so we'll wait
0: and see. And I guess there's been a lot more discussion about arthralgias and why they occur and even whether, I don't know, do you see Jack Cusick's paper in the Lancet Oncology looking at patients in the ATAC trial showing that those who got arthralgias and vasomotor symptoms from either tamoxifen or anastrozole had fewer recurrences, which is interesting.
1: That's sort of capitalizing on the whole idea of pharmacogenomics, yes. that if you have a sensitivity to well, I suppose not really a sensitivity, that some proportion of the population – doesn't metabolize a drug and therefore doesn't get the same end organ effect. So for tamoxifen, CYP2D6 polymorphisms are fascinating, and we'll be seeing a lot more data on that from the Adjuvant AI trials in the
0: future. But and just to clarify, those are the metabolizing enzymes for tamoxifen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's tamoxifen is metabolized, and we didn't know that. I mean, tamoxifen been around for ages. It's amazing how long it took us to figure that out. But science moves on. But tamoxifen is metabolized by this enzyme CYP2D6 to its most active metabolite, endoxifen, and then there's another active metabolite. It's a little less active for hydroxytamoxifen. CYP2D6 is really interesting because it is the enzyme that metabolizes a lot of drugs. And actually, there are many, many, many polymorphisms, over 120. So that's not true of all enzymes. So it just happens to be, you know, a place where a lot of drugs are metabolized and something that has a lot of different variations. It turns out that endoxifen is what makes tamoxifen really work. And it appears that endoxifen is what gives you hot flashes. So it's not a perfect system because we have people who are extensive metabolizers of tamoxifen who don't get hot flashes. So you can't say if you don't get – you need something like that if that's going to be a determinant of treatment to be – pretty close to determining who it works in and who it doesn't. But I have a whole clinic of people who don't get hot flashes on tamoxifen, and they've all been tested because we have an ongoing trial looking at polymorphisms for CYP2D6. And they're all metabolizers, intermediate or extensive.
0: Because it's not that common to see patients who are non-metabolizers, correct?
1: About, you know, we think it's about 6 to 8% in the Caucasian population. But again, polymorphisms have huge ethnic variations. So we have a lot of Asian patients in California, Northern California. They have different polymorphisms that result in poor metabolizing phenotype. And so there's a lot of controversy about whether or not we should be sending off this test and using it for treatment decisions. But if we have a study going on, so pretty much everybody taking tamoxifen gets CYP2D6 tested.
0: Do you think people who are not involved in the study ought to be sending this off?
1: Well, I think that for postmenopausal women... For whom a decision is being made to give tamoxifen for a higher risk tumor, probably doesn't make as much different if you have a really low risk tumor, that I would consider getting CYP2D6 testing because the decision to use one drug or the other is an easy one to make. It's not like for premenopausal women where we don't have the data and you don't have a good option. For example, if you have a 35-year-old woman and she's a poor metabolizer, you have to suppress her ovaries and monitor estrogen, give her an AI, and we don't have the data to support that. For a postmenopausal woman, we clearly have the data, so why not send the test because that's one more reason to maybe start with an AI. So that having been said, there's a ton of trials looking at CYP2D6 as retrospective analyses, and there's still a lot of controversy about it, and still a lot of people who say don't send it even though I'm saying I would. For aromatase inhibitors, we're much farther away. So I think we still are very far away from understanding whether or not joint pain corresponds to effectiveness of aromatase inhibitors. So I would exercise extreme caution in interpreting that data. There are studies going on looking at polymorphisms with AIs. We will have more data on it, and I wouldn't use it right now as a determinant because patients who switch therapies, we haven't yet had information that says that those people do worse. I think that some women, when they go into menopause, get a lot of joint pains and stiffness. In fact, it's one of the reasons why a lot of postmenopausal hormone therapy was given because people felt old. And, of course, as we get get older, we can comment on this in a much more realistic way. But, I mean, the trials, (laughs) you know,
0: show that the baseline rates of arthralgias were pretty high. They were high. And in tamoxifen patients, they were high, too.
1: Well, tamoxifen causes joint pains, too. Right. And, again, tamoxifen causes some estrogen deprivation-like symptoms. So I think that this is, you know, some kind of inflammatory joint symptom related to the amount of estrogen you have now, polymorphisms determine how much estrogen you make in tissues when you're menopause. So it makes a lot of sense to me that polymorphisms will determine arthralgias, but we don't yet know whether that's going to translate into relative benefit from AIs.
0: Everybody, I think, agrees, even Jack Cusick. I interviewed him about this, that it'd be great to see more data. But just, I guess, not just in terms of hypothesis generation, but maybe even in terms of clinical care. I mean, for example, if you have a patient who's having, let's say, mild or moderate arthralgias, you know, not that bad. Would it be rational to say, well, we don't really know, but maybe this is a sign that drug's working better? I mean, we have the precedent, for example, in lung and colon cancer of the EGFR inhibitors where the more rash you see, the better response. The concept is there. Maybe it's too early to be talking about it, but it just seems like it makes sense.
1: Well, I think the rash is some again, pharmacogenomic thing and maybe related to some kind of mutations is hard to know, but maybe having more estrogen in your tissues means that AIs are relatively less effective and those women don't have joint pains. I don't know, you know, that it has some sort of corollary with how much you suppress the aromatase enzyme and how effective you are at reducing tissue estrogen levels. If we find that out in the future, that would be great. I guess right now I'd be hesitant to use that as something I would tell a patient I think that I use the data, which I think is sufficient, of AIs versus tamoxifen to try and encourage women to stay on their AIs for as long as possible with NSAIDs, et cetera.
0: Do you have any sense about the adherence of patients to not just AIs but tamoxifen? There are data out there suggesting that maybe patients are not taking their medications as frequently as we think. What's your take on that?
1: I think probably most people are not very compliant with most medications. I don't think it's just AIs or tamoxifen. I think it includes cardiac drugs, antihypertensives, et cetera. And drugs that cause symptoms are going to be more affected by compliance than drugs that don't. You know, it was a big problem with oral CMF treatment. So I find there isn't a good way for us to assess compliance. But since generally we've seen better outcomes with the AIs, People must be taking it most of the time. They get a lot of symptoms from it. And, you know, they're worried about their cancer. So I think that mostly being compliant is adequate. I always ask patients, and we look at their refill records, but that's just something we have to be doing as part of our care of patients.
0: Why don't we talk about your second patient?
1: So this is a 44-year-old professor, actually, at one of our big universities, who's healthy and premenopausal, and she'd been getting her yearly mammogram. She felt a lump in her right breast, and in April of 2008, she had her mammogram. She had seen her doc, and her doc said, you know, I don't really feel this, and but why don't you go ahead and do your screening mammogram, which is due. And that was read as benign asymmetry in the upper or outer quadrant of her right breast, and so she, you know, was very much reassured. But she continued to feel this mass and is quite anxious, and felt, you know, eventually that she wasn't really comfortable with just the mammogram. She works actually, she's a researcher in health policy, so she has access to lots of people and was asking about it. So You have such asked, interesting
0: patients. <laughs> are all your patients, I mean, every time you present a patient, is like... Mm, Most
1: of them are, actually. Pretty interesting people. That's one of the kind of interesting parts of being a medical oncologist, meeting all these people with different worlds. So in June of 2008, she actually requested and got a diagnostic mammogram, which now shows a 1.4 centimeter spiculated mass in the same place as the asymmetry. And an ultrasound confirmed that this was a hypoechoic mass. So she got a core biopsy, and that showed a 1.5 centimeter intermediate grade invasive ductal carcinoma that was estrogen and progesterone receptor positive and HER2 negative. And at the time, she didn't have A lot of palpable disease. You know, in fact, people had a hard time feeling what she was feeling, that surgeons eventually were able to feel sort of a density in that area, but no palpable axillary lymph nodes. So because she was very anxious to avoid chemotherapy and was thinking maybe she could avoid more treatment if she did a mastectomy versus a lumpectomy, she really didn't want to get radiation therapy. She asked for an oncotype recurrence score to be sent, and it was 14, which is on the low end. So she's very happy, as was her surgeon, always good. But, of course, from her core, the surgical margins were positive. So an MRI was also obtained, and this showed enhancement over 25% of her breasts, but it was thought that this might represent – it was clumped enhancement and thought to be probably due to DCIS. So she goes ahead and a small tumor, no hurry. She waits till the school year ends and she does her elective mastectomy without reconstruction. And her pathology shows it's 4.2 centimeter grade two invasive cancer mixed ductal and lobular and two out of three sentinel lymph nodes were positive and the largest focus was a centimeter. So this was not a subtle node positive disease. So she had a full dissection, 14 additional nodes, and they were negative and then came to me for a discussion of treatment options completely shattered by these pathology
0: results. And what were you thinking?
1: Well, so, you know, it's interesting. She had a much bigger tumor than was shown by her ultrasound or mammogram, and that's not unexpected in a premenopausal woman. And well, so in fact, she's
0: got a little lobular in there. And how much mm-hmm. was lobular?
1: Well, You know, it still is a ductal cancer, even if it's mixed, because there wasn't any pure lobular cancer there, but it's probably about 25% of the tumor mass. And that part is, as you're alluding to, much less likely to be seen by mammography. And in fact, often we don't even see the full size of the tumor by ultrasound because it doesn't clump as well, you know, make a mass. So maybe that played a role as well, but she was completely overwhelmed by the idea that all of these studies would have missed it. Now, the MRI was done outside at a community hospital, and I just want to sort of put in a little comment about that, which is that we often see different things with our state-of-the-art diagnostic MRI imaging of the breast. I mean, we started MRI imaging. We were one of the first places doing MRI imaging and have very strict protocols. We have radiologists who only read breast MRIs. And I think you have to be very cautious with when you're really trying to find out the details with where you have your MRI and who reads it. So that's just one caution. So we're thinking, okay, 4.2 centimeter ERPR positive cancer. Nonetheless, she has two positive nodes. So that's biologically very important to me. I don't really know how to evaluate the Oncotype score, again, in a premenopausal woman with positive nodes and a big tumor because we just don't have the validation data. This kind of patient really was not well represented in the intergroup trial of Kathy Albain that we were talking about earlier. So I said to her, you know, our standard chemotherapy for a node-positive tumor is dose-tense ACT or TAC chemotherapy. And this is what we do. But we have a really interesting national clinical trial that you could enroll on. And that trial is looking to see whether or not Bevacizumab or Avastin adds to adjuvant therapy. And here's the basis for this trial design. We've got some preclinical data, and we have two first-line trials in the metastatic setting with taxanes showing a marked improvement in response and a doubling of time to progression with paclitaxel and some improvement with docetaxel, even though they stopped the chemotherapy before patients progressed in the Avado trial. So you know, here's the trial, and here's the upside and downside in toxicity. In the ECOG 5103 trial, which is the trial I'm referring to, It's actually a two-to-two-to-one randomization schema so that arm A receives ACT, and you can give the AC either every three weeks or dose dense. The T is given weekly, so paclitaxel weekly for 12 weeks, very well tolerated, and you get a placebo infusion if you're in arm A. Arm B, you get bevacizumab. Arm C, actually, at the end of chemo, they unblind it so the patient knows, and then receive a year of bevacizumab so nobody gets placebo when they're not getting chemo otherwise.
0: And if you think about it, it's kind of trying to adjust up front a question we never addressed with adjuvant trastuzumab, which is, could you get away with just giving it during the chemo? Or do you need to do what we're all doing now, which is continue out by itself for a year?
1: Absolutely. It's incredibly important because we've all become biased to, you know, give a year of trastuzumab. And Maybe longer if somebody had really, really bad cancer. You know, it's hard to know. And this study, I think, is incredibly important in terms of letting us know. And it's a very clever design as well because, you know, patients aren't going to take a placebo for a year. So it's a very clever design where you don't know during the chemo, but then you're unblinded towards the end. You actually be unblinded by the ninth or tenth cycle of paclitaxel to help with planning. And so I found patients to be very receptive to the study. They're really, really open to it. And I haven't had a patient who I wanted to. Role in the trial, elect not to participate.
0: So this lady joined the trial.
1: She did. She read a lot about it. We talked a lot about it. not as much as the first case about that D.C. trustee's because she knew she needed chemo, and she did the treatment, and she actually did pretty well with it. I mean, Where did I think she get that- randomized to? She was randomized to arm B because she's already been unblinded. So she received bevacizumab, and she actually completed her chemotherapy. She was seen by the radiation oncologist who decided that she wouldn't get enough benefit from radiation with her mastectomy because she only had two positive nodes. Long discussion. She was very pleased with that. And she started on her tamoxifen because she's premenopausal with a discussion ongoing about Whether or not she should have ovarian suppression if her menses recover, she's still amenorrheic, and then go on tamoxifen. I'm a big proponent of ovarian suppression, particularly in high-risk ER-positive cancers in premenopausal women. And the data from NSABP B30 reinforces that, where women who had amenorrhea for at least six months had a better outcome.
0: So I just want to briefly ask you, because we don't want to get too medical oncology here, but... If you have to look back over the last year or so, certainly one of the most exciting moments was at the San Antonio meeting when Sasha Vikolja presented a phase two study on an agent called TDM1. And I know you actually brought a patient to present, but maybe you can just explain what it is.
1: Yeah, and we actually enrolled quite a number of patients in that trial. I'm a co-author, and I have just enrolled in the now-closed second-generation Phase two trial. This is a fascinating drug, a smart bomb approach. It's trastuzumab or herceptin linked with a very special linker to a chemotherapy drug called derivative of Matensin-1. And this drug, DM1, so it's called TDM1 is actually very similar to the vinca alkaloids like vincristine or vinarelbine. And what this drug does is it actually destabilizes the microtubules that are important for cell division, so it causes cell death. But the drug has been around for a long time and was tested in phase one trials in the past, but it was way too toxic. caused hepatic toxicity and low platelets, the low platelets being the dose-limiting toxicity. So, When they tried to make TDM1, the first problem they had was finding a linker. So There's actually some really interesting research data on finding the right linker that won't let the DM1 go in the circulation and cause unacceptable toxicity. But now they've got a good linker, and what happens is the trastuzumab binds to the receptor, and then the complex, the TDM1, is internalized, and the linker has to be digested inside the cell to release the DM1, and you get very little free drug exposure. So the phase one trials were all these patients who had multi-treated trastuzumab, you know, with lapatinib. not lapatinib then, I guess lapatinib wasn't around, and they saw some responses. So we jumped on this phase two trial, and we've seen patients respond to the drug with minimal toxicity. I mean, there is some, low platelets, increased but do you, enzymes. Do you see
0: like chemo Incredible effects responses. like hair loss, nausea? No body. hair
1: loss. Some, a little bit of nausea and vomiting, a little bit of systemic effect. As I mentioned, the low platelets. But
0: nothing like what you would see with a patient really getting systemic chemo. No,
1: and not the kind of fatigue and symptoms. I mean, some patients get release of drug, but it's small numbers, and the responses are dramatic. You know, people progress, obviously, but we have excellent responses in patients who have disease refractory to both Herceptin and lapatinib or Ticurb. So it's a really remarkable agent. And actually, Mark Pegram was telling me that they're just now opening the pivotal trial, which is looking at lapatinib and capcitabine or Ticurb and Zolota compared to TDM1. So the whole idea is you could give this drug without chemo because you're carrying the chemo along with it.
0: So I know you actually brought this whole complicated case of a patient who received TDM1. She had already had a ton of prior therapy pericardial tamponade. Sounds like she was in deep trouble.
1: Yeah, we actually didn't think that she would survive very long. She was a mess. I mean, she had a huge chest wall mass uh, causing compression of venous structures and a huge swollen arm. I mean, massive and pericardial tamponade. She was a mess, couldn't breathe. And she, you know, we tapped her, made her well enough performance status wise to go on the TDM1 trial. And she's on it a year later. She just went on the extension trial with no disease. So she's still getting it? She has no disease. Wow.
0: She had a complete response. She did. Amazing. I'm hearing stories from all the investigators who participated in this study. Really interesting and important for surgeons to know about in terms of moving forward for the future. Yeah. You
1: know, the funny thing from the medical oncologist's perspective is that the insurance companies come back to you and say, why are you getting scans every three months on this patient who has no cancer? <laughs> <laughs>